Can I ask a favor before we get started? Maybe someone who's close here. Victoria, would you mind grabbing me a little bit of water? <laughs> would you do that? Would you grab me a little cup of water? Yes, you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I thought I could get by without a drink, and I don't think I can. Thank you. I was looking for someone close. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray. This is not just a perfunctory act because that's what you do before the sermon, Lord. We need your help. We stand in need of divine assistance this morning. As we open the scriptures, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the manifest connections between this ancient word and our changing world, between the uh, several hundreds of centuries before Jesus and this world Uh, wisdom that we're going to learn about and our workplace in the 21st century. Lord, that is a a leap that we cannot make on our own. So I pray that you would make a miracle happen, that you would come here by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. Lord, we love the Bible. We thank you for it. We believe in its authority. We believe in its trustworthiness, its necessity, its sufficiency, its clarity. Come and make these things plain to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, my friend. I'll meet you halfway. (laughs) Thank you. I have always been struck by the opening lines of a book by Chicago journalist Studs Terkel that he wrote in 1974 called Working. Um, I've shared them with you all from this pulpit before, but they're so good, I, I do have to share them again. It's been two years since I've preached on this topic. In the introduction, Terkel writes the following. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights. It's about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all or beneath all, about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. Those words were penned 38 years ago by Studs Terkel, and they are as true today as they were then. Terkel died at age 96, just a handful of years ago. He was by profession, religious profession, an agnostic individual. But that did not prevent him from putting his finger on the pulse of the American worker all those years ago and making a profoundly religious point in the process. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 gives us the backstory. The Lord says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And as if commenting like an Old Testament scholar on those verses, Studs Terkel observes, this book, Working, is about a search, too, 
for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Work is about a search for life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Each day of your working life, you are mixing it up with people like this. People for whom to merely survive the day is triumph enough. You go to school with some of these people, you labor alongside them, you live in their neighborhoods. People who aren't only searching for daily bread through their work, but daily meaning through their work. People who are looking for life amid their Monday through Friday sort of dying. And there is perhaps no greater way to influence people for the gospel than through your work. Because if you are a Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised within a -a one-of-a-kind vocation. We've actually done this before. You remember this exercise in our congregational sharing times? We've passed the mic and we've said, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised as a, and then the answers come back, stay-at-home mom, blacktopper, accountant, right? You may care for a home full of children. You might teach a classroom. You might work in a cubicle or a hospital. You might lay blacktop. You might lay down the law. But what you all have in common is that if you follow Christ, you've been given a vocation. A vocation. And that's a word that's actually fallen on hard times in recent years. The word vocation is mistakenly used to speak of a mere job or a way that we pay the bills. Work or maybe a career. But it's, it's a whole lot more than that. Our English word vocation comes from a Latin word meaning to call or to bid or to beckon. So think about this. A vocation is a divine summons from the author of the universe to a Christian to use their God-given time and talents for their own good as well as the good of other people to the glory and praise of Jesus. I'll say that again. A vocation is a divine summons. That's what you want to hear. A summons from the author of the universe to people like us who follow Jesus so that it might be for our own Good that we put our time and talents to work, but also for the common good, to the glory and praise of Christ. If you've ever wondered where in the Bible you might begin to develop the teaching of the Bible on the doctrine of vocation, uh, you could do a lot worse than Colossians 3, 23 to 24. It's a good place to start. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ is your supervisor if you are a Christian. This morning in the book of Proverbs, we want to learn God's wisdom for us from 9 to 5. Or for those of us with a little bit more erratic schedule, maybe it's 5 to 9 for you. I identify with that schedule. I identify with both And I know that we have a lot of different situations today. People coming from different perspectives on this issue of vocation. Uh, Some of you are gainfully employed and grateful for it. Some of you are gainfully employed and can't stand it. Some of you are currently unemployed and would love nothing more than to catch on somewhere soon. Some of you are in retirement mode after having been in the workforce for 40 plus years 
and you've entered into a new season. Some of you are unable to work and depend upon the work of others to help make ends meet. And other of us here are younger. We're students, and you are preparing for your vocation. Your work right now is study, but you are preparing for a calling, whether or not you realize that. Lots of different kinds of people here this morning. But just remember this. If you are in one category here, you're not going to be there for long. Um, like they say about the weather in the great state of Missouri, wait around a while and it'll change. Vocation is a steady state reality, but our employment is not always. If you're a Christian, God has summoned you to a particular calling. So everyone ought to listen carefully today and listen sympathetically. Listen from different angles because different people are going to hear this from, from their own context. We're going to review four timeless, hands-on truths about the nature of working to the glory of God. That's what we're going to do. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, skillfully disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation. So number one, work hard. Work hard. If you haven't done so, I will invite you to open a Bible right now to the book of Proverbs. And we'll begin with the sixth chapter. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. If you want to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text is found on page 531. 531 in the red Bibles. Proverbs 6, verse 6. In this verse, we are introduced for the first time in the book of Proverbs to this character known as the sluggard. The first time he rears his head, it won't be the last. We hear about the sluggard upwards of two dozen times throughout the 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. But this is the first appearance. He's a a figure of comic tragedy, maybe tragic comedy. Uh, There's a balance here. I mean, as, as I read Proverbs 6, for example, verses 6 to 11... I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, These verses are a trap for us because if you only laugh at these verses I'm going to read, you're not getting the warning. But if you only cry, then you're not getting the joke. So we want to listen really carefully. Look with me at Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares herself bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. We're going to camp out in this image of the, uh, the sluggard for a little bit here in Proverbs, but I... I just want to also acknowledge that laziness is complex, and Proverbs doesn't give us the the full story on laziness. It gives us a big part of the story. Laziness is a condition with symptoms that shows itself in a variety of ways. Uh, For example, one way that laziness manifests itself, believe it or not, is in our busyness. It's in our busyness. It was once said of C.S. Lewis that only lazy people uh, who work hard Uh, do so lazily by abdicating their essential work of deciding and directing and establishing values and setting goals for other people to do it for us. Then we find ourselves frantically at the last minute trying to satisfy a half dozen different demands on our time, none of which is essential to our vocation. 
to stave off the disaster of disappointing someone. Sometimes laziness is tough to spot because it's cloaked as busyness. We get busy because we are lazy. Um, But Proverbs is making a a different point, a complementary point here about laziness. Let's take some time and soak a little bit in what Solomon is saying. The ant referred to in verse 6 is most likely the harvester ant, who would have been very common in ancient Palestine and today. Um, I'm sure the irony isn't lost on anyone here. I mean, think about this. A human being, the pinnacle of God's creation, someone who bears the very image and glory of Almighty God is sent to school. And it's sluggard school. And the professor conducting the business class is the harvester ant. This ant, we're told in verse 7, does all of her work in spite of having no chief or officer or ruler. I would add to that no reason, no conscience, no soul. How much more ought we who have not only these faculties, but we have teachers, trainers, mentors, bosses, leaders, curriculum, seminars, conferences, how much more ought we to imitate the ant? The problem is is that there's a sluggard in each of us. It's not just a select few. This is a a sin that is uh, one that we all equally offend. Scripture speaks of the sluggard very often. We all know what verse 10 is like, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, We're not asking for much, we're just asking for a little, a little more rest, little time to relax, just a a chance to hit the snooze once or twice, maybe three times, right, at the most. And the folding of the hands to rest here, uh, I wish the word hands were translated the right way, it's really arms, it's not, I mean, no one rests like this, they didn't rest this way a thousand years before Jesus, and we don't rest that way today. The hands here are arms, it's everything from the elbow down, It's, it's this. And it's kind of snuggling up, and it's even a defiant pose. These arms will not be used to work, is what the sluggard is saying. Now, this is a far cry from the statement in Ecclesiastes 5.12 that says, sweet is the sleep of the laborer. That's the good stuff. When you come home bone-weary from a a good day's work, that's right. But the sluggard in Proverbs 6 hasn't earned his sleep because he hasn't begun to work yet. Proverbs 26.14 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. So it's not as if he's only anchored to the bed. The guy is chained to his bed. He is hinged to his bed, fixed there. The the sluggard has trouble getting started. Not only the sluggard has trouble getting started, he has trouble following through. In chapter 12, verse 27 of Proverbs, we learn that whoever is slothful, catch this, will not even roast his game. Okay, this is someone who's already returned from the hunt. The hard part's over. All he's got to do is light up the Smoky Joe, right? And he won't even do that. Or 1924 in the book of Proverbs, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it to his mouth. That's a stunning picture. It ratchets up laziness to an art form. Why is all this such a big deal? What happens when we succumb to laziness? As one great leader from yesteryear wrote, 
Our idle days are Satan's busy days. We ought to tremble at the responsibility of doing nothing. There's a reason why people refer to the Puritan work ethic or the Protestant work ethic. Sometimes people use those terms, uh, Protestant work ethic, Puritan work ethic, like synonyms for for workaholism or materialism or one-upmanship, and that's not really a fair use of the words. The Protestant reformers, English and American Puritans, had a clear grasp of what the Bible says about work and about vocation, and they made their case from books like the book of Proverbs. They drew their wisdom from Proverbs like this, Proverbs 10.4, the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son. Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. And I think my favorite on the nature of work is uh, Proverbs 22.29, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And the testimony of the New Testament is no less clear on this score. It's uncomfortably clear. Hard work is praised and laziness on the job is given a zero tolerance policy. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 3.11. If one is not willing to work, does anyone know how to finish this? Neither let him eat. And it seems that the Apostle Paul's vision here, though it looks like a lack of compassion on this issue, is rather in full harmony with the Savior that appointed him in the first place. Jesus taught about work. Remember when the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of breaking the law by healing the man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5? Remember the Savior's response to them? John five seventeen. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So there certainly is something to be said for taking a regular, regular day off each week. Absolutely. Weaving in patterns of rest throughout our, our days, our weeks, our months, and our years. But the reason that our vocations are called work is that they are. It's called work, not rest. One of the best reputations we can develop as Christians on the job is that of being diligent workers, especially when your colleagues, your coworkers see you as not doing what you're doing for a big pile of money or for a bunch of recognition. You are painstaking and persistent. You are precise in your work because you serve a precise God that you answer to the Lord Jesus Christ who has called you to your vocation to bring him honor, to bring him glory on the job. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised within a -a one-of-a-kind vocation, so work hard. Now, here's where you want to link point one with point two. Point one alone is something that lots of folks who don't know Jesus do for the wrong motives, but point two is going to give it some flavor. Second point. If you're a Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, skillfully disguised within a -a one-of-a-kind vocation, so cultivate contentment. Cultivate contentment. Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Proverbs 15.27, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles 
his whole household. Proverbs 15.6 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. And along similar lines, Proverbs 16.8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So cultivate contentment. Another way to say it is fear greed. There's a hall of shame in the Bible that speaks to us so, I think, persuasively in this area. If you think of the number of names, we don't even have to get out of the Old Testament. People whose lives were absolutely shattered by a quest for more. Lot, Achan, Ahab, Gehazi, Jehoiakim. Even the writer of these very Proverbs found himself in trouble, right? Solomon himself is a cautionary tale of greed if there ever was one. When Solomon tells you, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it, we really ought to listen. And did you catch Proverbs fifteen sixteen when I read it? Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Don't read unjust gain like knocking off banks or pulling Ponzi schemes. I mean, that does bring trouble to our household. But unjust gain isn't just something that we do that is illegal. It is something that we do that is unloving. It's any pursuit of more at the expense of others, particularly those in our own home. It's the dad that's always on his smartphone. Will never give it a rest, even when he's home. It's the parent regularly keeping work hours that wreck or bite into family time. It's the mom that doesn't keep a family budget that frees the family to give generously to the work of the gospel and to the local church. That's the kind of unjust gain that we're talking about. And it ruins a home. True Christian contentment means to be content with very, very little in this world. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote, Here lies the mystery of contentment. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage from this one to the next. But all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. You see why he says that? Because when Christ is your portion, when he is the one who satisfies you, you have your needs met. And if you don't have Christ, no matter what else you may have, I can guarantee you, you won't have contentment. Another old saint, Charles Bridges, said, If the sight of a man's possessions stirs envy in your heart, his inability to enjoy them might shortly melt away in compassion. (laughs) And here's where point one and two come together. As I mentioned in the last point, if your coworkers see hard work and diligence come together with contentment, they will notice something very different about you. Those two don't go together in our culture very often, rarely. But as people begin to see these realities come together in your life, something will happen that the Apostle Peter reminds us of in 1 Peter 3.15. We're going to want to be prepared to make a defense for anyone who gives us, asks us to give a reason for the hope that's in us. You're going to have an opportunity on your hands to bear witness to a hard-working Savior who had no place to lay his head, by the way, who was the most completely content human being who ever lived. 
If you are a Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation. So cultivate contentment. Work hard on the one hand, but don't work for what it gives you. Create, uh, find your contentment in your creator and in your Lord Jesus. Third, if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation, so tell the truth. Tell the truth. Lots of Proverbs address the topic of truth-telling, but a very surprisingly high number address the topic of truth-telling within the context of your work environment. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 20.10, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20.23, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. A false scale is not good. This is the book of Proverbs' way of urging us to abandon falsehood and to tell the truth on the job. This is the picture. Imagine a a marketplace in Israel. Busy, bustling marketplace. Can you picture it? The deceitful shop owner is going to carry two different weights in his little pouch at his side. One weight is going to be too heavy, and he'll use that one for purchasing. The other weight he's going to pull out is going to be too light, and he's going to use that when he is selling Either way, so long as he doesn't get caught over the course of the day's trading, he is going to make a killing. And this is the way to get ahead in that culture and in this one. And we do this a thousand ways today. Those of you who are applying for jobs, when you bend the truth on your resume, those of you who are employed, when you fudge the numbers on company track records, Maybe if you're in sales, giving someone the impression that your product is a little better than it actually is, just to increase the take. Maybe if you're um, a manager promising team members bonuses that you never intend to come through on. Lying is just like breathing in some workplaces. And to not do it puts you in a pretty precarious situation. But for many folks... Participating in that kind of environment is just not a problem. It's a compromise, but it's one they're willing to make. It's just what you do. But for a Christian, truth-telling is very close to being the queen of virtues. I wonder if humility isn't the greatest virtue in the Christian life. But I would say truth-telling might be a close second. We serve a God who is, as Titus 1-2 says, a God who never lies. And I realize it's costly for us to imitate him on this point in every way in our vocations, but it is critical. Think about it for a minute. If you can't be trusted in your workplace or on your job search or where you go to school, if you can't be trusted as someone who speaks the truth in every situation, in small matters of honesty with reference to worldly things, what on earth would possess someone to believe that they could bank on what you have to say about eternal things? about heavenly things. This is where we need a track record. We need to bank some goodwill over a period of time. People will watch you. People will see. And you'll become to known as someone who who tells the truth. Someone who can be trusted. And they'll be much more willing to help hear you when it comes to spiritual things. On the other side, uh, Proverbs 16, 11 says, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. 
All the weights in his bag are his work. So when we are truth-tellers on the job or truth-tellers in school or truth-tellers on the way to our vocation, people will come to see that all the weights in our bag are his work. They will connect us um, with something outside of ourselves, namely grace. If you are a Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, skillfully disguised within a one-of-a-kind vocation. So tell the truth. It's the only way to earn the street credibility to speak of the greatest truth of all, the truth of Jesus. Final point today. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised within a -a one-of-a-kind vocation. So lead and follow faithfully. Lead and follow faithfully. This last point is for employers as well as employees. It's for teachers as well as for students, those who lead, those who follow. Listen to this. I didn't even know this one was in there. Proverbs 26.10. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. If you're a manager, the team that you build says a lot about you. And it sets up the environment. It begins to have a massive effect on the others with whom they're placed. When you make a bad hire as an employee, this proverb says that's like an archer aiming his arrows at at everyone present. Or as one commentator puts it, anyone who hires him hires one who is as berserk and dangerous as a mass terrorist. Talk about a bad hire. Another proverb for managers, Proverbs 28, 16. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. Colossians 4.1 says it this way, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This is where leading and following come full circle because none of us lead that don't eventually follow. And those of us who are Christians, if we are followers, we by definition are leaders in the workplace too. But think about this. I mean, even CEOs, or rather employees have bosses, Bosses have employers that run all the way up to the CEO, but the CEO isn't the top of the pile. He answers in turn to a a board of directors. The board of directors is held accountable by the stockholders, the shareholders, and around and around we go. I learned that line of thought from an author named Gene Veith. We all follow someone, even when we're leading. That's why Proverbs 27, 18 says, whoever guards his master will be honored. As Christians, it's essential that we come to understand authority as God's idea and that we move and live with a a great sense of authority over us. Effective engagement of our culture always, always involves submitting ourselves to authority and oftentimes to unbelieving authority at that. As a Christian, God calls you in the workplace to be a model employee regardless of how difficult your employer makes that task. And as a Christian in the workplace, God also equips you to be a model employee. And he does it through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ's cross work. Uh, listen again to the passage that Seth read for us earlier. 1 Peter chapter 2. Employees and employers, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, 
One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued himself, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, you may be with us today and gainfully employed, but spiritually lost. And for you, those words in 1 Peter 2 show you the way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you're someone who on the front end of the sermon identified way too much with the the words of Studs Terkel, I hope that you will reach out in faith to the Savior presented to you at the back end of this sermon, the Lord Jesus Jesus had a calling too, and it wasn't just carpentry. It was atonement. That was his calling. The work that Jesus did in his life and in his death to earn our salvation. And all he asks is that we come. We come to him in repentance and faith. We place the full weight of our trust on him like we talked about last week. We do a belly flop on the Lord. We place all of our faith in him and trust him to hold us up, to rescue us. We confess him as our Lord, our treasure, our savior. If you are a Christian, you are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every every moment of your work on the job reflects him in one way or another, either well or poorly. We are skillfully disguised within a -a one-of-a-kind vocation. He lets you wear a disguise at work, but you better not be disguised as a believer. Your vocation is the clerical garb that you wear on the job. But you have an opportunity to speak the gospel of grace to people, so you want to make your walk to match your talk, so work hard, cultivate contentment, tell the truth, lead, and follow faithfully. If that's your pattern of life, by grace, trusting in his power flowing through you as you work, don't be surprised if people ask you why you do what you do and with what resources you do it. Next week, we're going to return to the book of Proverbs and learn what the Bible has to say about wisdom for our wealth. And we'll pick it up there. But right now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are working, your son says, and he is working today. His great work is to be a priest on our behalf, to be on his knees before you, praying for all that you've given him. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you set the pace. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would follow in your steps, just as 1 Peter says. Father, help us to turn away with all of our might from laziness, from sloth. Help us to work 
hard. Help us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, as the Apostle Paul says. Father, may we be people who are truly content, truly content with what you've given us. I pray that that combination of hard work and simple contentment in Christ would speak volumes when we're on the job. Lord, help us to be truth-tellers. Help us to be people who um, bank good favor over days and weeks and months and years of having a track record of truth-telling so that when the time comes to speak of the way, the truth, and the life, that that we have some credibility. Lord, I pray that you would blow open wide doors this week for the word that people would have an opportunity to speak of their Savior as they work. And Lord, I pray that we would lead and follow faithfully. You model it so well. Lord, those who lead in this church, I pray that they would do so as servant leaders, that they would set the tone uh, like Jesus does over those who are they are responsible for. And Lord, help us to be people, even if we serve underneath unbelieving employers, help us to humbly and faithfully take their direction so that we can give them a picture of what it looks like to see someone who follows the risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for our vocations. We thank you for our callings. Put us to work this week. I pray, Father, for those who are unemployed. Lord, help them. Their, their job right now is to find a job, and what they need more than anything is encouragement. And grace, I pray that you would help people who are in an application process to be patient and to be diligent. Lord, we thank you for those who have completed their work. I thank you for the many years that are represented by retirees here. May we be able to look for them, look to them for wisdom for our work and our labor today. And Lord, for those who are young among us, as they look at the prospect of vocation, Lord, make it clear. Help them to know what you've created them for. We want to be the right people in the right places for the right reasons. So Lord, draw us into a deep understanding of what it is to be one who is on mission in our places of employment. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.